fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News, and then talk about eating dog with my friend Caitlin. Great. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Jody? Uh, you know, struggling. <laughs> my emotional well-being has reached its limit. But uh, I guess I'll be fine for the duration of this podcast. <laughs> Hopefully, or it just kind of puts you down even more. Yeah, just struggling with kids and all that kind of crap, you know. You know how it is. Well, not the kids, but like... Well, yeah, I don't know how it is. <laughs> COVID struggling. But your stories are a good source of birth control. <laughs> yes. I should be hired by pro-abortionists just for my, my life stories. Pro-abortionists, yeah. <laughs> I want to promote again that I've been doing Friday streams. I think they've been going pretty successful. We actually had some audience members... Uh, chatting up in the, the Twitch stream. So last week, and the videos are still up. I'm eventually going to transfer them over to YouTube because stream event or Twitch eventually deletes the streams. But right now it remained, it, it's still up on uh, Twitch. And we covered a video that was talking about masks. And it was basically anti-mask propaganda during this COVID thing. So that's still up. You can go check that out. And we'll have a new one this Friday at 8pm. And if you're a Patreon at the $10 or above level, you can join the voice chat. So that's tons of fun. So sign up to that if you want to. But for now, we'll go right into the show. This is the Imperial Roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. This is what happened on the Rebel from October 5th to October 9th. Ezra starts another week by downplaying the severity of the virus. After saying the pandemic is over, he then admits it isn't zero because of his weird conspiracy that Quebec's numbers are high because they are pro-euthanasia somehow. He also addresses the fact that more people are starting to die from the pandemic uh, as the second wave is incoming, even though he keeps saying uh, the thing is over, right? So it's over, but the second wave, there's more deaths coming. But he claims the increase is artificial uh, because the results uh, that are showing an increase is because they're counting people who died back in the spring. Now, there is some truth to this. So like there's some cases they didn't uh, catch earlier on and then they're updating their numbers. But it also ignores the fact that deaths are in fact increasing regardless of this fact. But on top of that, it's curious that this pandemic has caused Ezra to start hating Doug Ford as he calls him an authoritarian for telling people to wear masks. Shocking. I, <laughs> I thought it was more author authoritarian when Doug Ford forced universities to make free speech pledges that silenced left-wing voices on campus. But no, it's the mask mandates during a global pandemic that is the real authoritarianism. Tonight, Doug Ford wants to lock down Ontario, even though the pandemic is over. It's October 5th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Andrew Lawton is on talking about Trump being infected with COVID. This turns into a chat about how mainstream media always does the opposite of what Trump says. If Trump is for hydroxychloroquine, the media is against it. They whine that if Trump didn't go for a joyride outside his hospital to wave to his fans, the media would have complained that he stayed inside. 
They also criticized the media's coverage of the ride outside the hospital, saying media is overblowing the threat of a contagious Trump to White House staff. Those Secret Service agents, they're being abused by the president. By the way, you're a fit 30-year-old Secret Service agent. Uh, I think you've got like one in a billion chance of being hurt by this virus. And by the way, you signed up willing to take a bullet. I think, you, I think you'll be in the car with the president who has a bit of a cough. You have to be anyways. Taking a bullet to save the president is much different than the president potentially spreading a deadly infectious disease to you. But also it is avoidable if he's just stayed the fuck inside. Liberal MP Stephen Gibo has blocked Ezra on Twitter, and he's super upset about it. After all, if he's blocked on Twitter, he can't force Gibo to watch that stupid clip of him saying he's going to license websites over and over again for the billionth time, which Ezra does, even in this episode. However, the main reason he wants to talk about Gibo is because Gibo has hired Mohammed Hassan, who is an organizer for Toronto Labour, but Ezra isn't mad about the labour organizing. He's mad that Hassam is Muslim, and dedicates a whole segment of his show trying to paint Hashim as a race hustler, whatever the hell that means. Ezra spends an entire segment talking about the words Finkfluencer in Deliveryology. He says he doesn't want to use these words, but then uses them over and over again. The point is to paint Trudeau as an elitist and to mock him in the process, which shouldn't be that hard. The only problem is that Ezra is just not funny and just ends up sounding really insane. Hello, my rebels. Today, I want to go deep in two made-up words, Finkfluencer and Deliverology. Do you think I'm making these words up? Do you really think I'm making them up? Or do you think they're at the heart of Justin Trudeau's worldview? <laughs> Ezra is mad that a bylaw in Calgary is silencing the speech of pro-life activists. The bylaw prevents anyone from displaying a sign bigger than 3.5 by 5 inches that publicly expresses an opinion within 150 meters of a school on a school day. The council voted in favor of this bylaw after members of the anti-abortion group Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform held large graphic signs of bloodied fetuses in front of an elementary school. Of course, Ezra doesn't explain this to his audience, but I would add it shouldn't have taken an anti-abortion group's uh, uh, to show bloodied fetuses to kids for this to matter. CCBR does this shit outside of universities, and it's just as traumatic to uh, older people as well. Kian Bex is in Red Deer to witness an anti-racist event. Kian claims that these activists came ready for a riot since they brought golf, golf clubs and bats. No riot occurred, obviously. What they never mention is that this event was in reaction to racists attacking people such as Pat King, who has been a guest on Ezra's show and was caught punching anti-racist activists. So the golf clubs were not for rioting, but actually for self-protection. Ezra says that this event is not necessary because Alberta never had a history of slavery. This might be technically true considering slavery was abolished in the British Empire in 1834 and Alberta didn't become a province until 1905. It is still possible slaves were present in the land before it was called Alberta, especially during the fur trade. All of this is besides the point, since you don't need a history of slavery to have the existence of racism. And that's the week. Current Liberal MP, Catherine McKenna, when she was 23 or 24, 
She went on a trip to Indonesia with three other men to film a pilot for a travel television show that was never picked up. Ezra says she traveled with three young men, although the men kind of looked older than she did. I'm not sure if I know what the, the age of the men are. McKenna and three young men traveled together, lived in tents together, really spent every waking and sleeping moment together for 60 days as they went through Indonesia. That's a quirky arrangement, don't you think? But let's put that aside for now. They slept in the same tents as well. So Ezra is like, ooh, like, are they having sex? Like, I think that's what he's implying. Yeah. Eventually, the trip was released in 1999 on the Outdoor Life Network and the Travel Channel in the United States. And it was uh, called Real Travels, 60 Days in Indonesia. The video has been online for some time now and is periodically played on these channels, but it was recently rediscovered by the post-millennial who are now trying to use it to smear uh, McKenna. Yeah. There are three main pivot points that Ezra seems to be upset about, two which we mentioned briefly last week in one of our uh, Imperial Roundup segments. And these two things were the presence of illegal cockfighting in the film, but also a scene where they consume dog meat. Ezra... Now, having watched the film, and not just relying on the post-millennial article, has discovered something else he finds morally repugnant, and that is the presence of a wedding which involved a bride price. And before we jump into that, we will take each of these in turns to discuss, like, how we feel about each thing, and we'll discuss how Ezra feels about it and see whether we're in agreement or not with Ezra. <laughs> so, the cockfight. In the video... Uh, the 60 days travel in Indonesia video with McKenna. They pick up a hitchhiker in Bali who tells them about a cockfight. And so the man takes them to the cockfight and then they have to pay a bribe because cockfighting, it's described in the video that cockfighting is illegal. And so everyone has to chip in a bribe to basically uh, pay off the police so they don't disrupt the event. And then at one point, one of the men, the, the narrator of the film, actually bets on uh, their hitchhiker's rooster in the, the cockfight. Ezra's main argument seems to be the focus on animal welfare. And he compares McKenna to Michael Vick. So I don't know if you remember, but Michael Vick was uh, a football player in the United States who was doing dogfighting. Yeah, I don't know anything about football players, Jody. So no, I don't remember <laughs> or know. I, neither do I. I just remember it was a huge story because uh, it was very graphic and they were basically sicking dogs on each other. And uh, as someone who cares about animal welfare, I, I was pretty upset about the Michael Vick case. So this is when I get into like my own personal feelings about it, which is that I think there is something worthwhile to having an anthropological lens. But but I do think this film kind of crosses a line, and I don't know which, if you agree with me or not, but I think well, once the guy starts actively betting on the rooster, that to me like does rub me the wrong way. Like It would be one thing if you show up and you're just like, here's a bunch of, uh, here's what they do in Bali. Like, here's yeah. the underworld rooster fighting. But as soon as you're like, you know what? I want in on that action. <laughs> yeah, but they might just be wanting to like participate fully. They went to a country and they violated one of its laws. But the thing is, it wasn't even a noble law to break. Like, it would be one thing if they're like, we freed a bunch of roosters. <laughs> yeah. But instead, it was like gambling on the, the cockfight. And the cockfight's like, 
they're pretty brutal so they were like strapping blades to the the rooster's feet and then like you know they fight and then stab each other with their uh blades that have been attached to their feet that's crazy i didn't know that they did shit like that yeah and so it's it's even uh more intense than that because apparently i was looking into it just to see like how common cockfighting is in bali and apparently in bali itself so like indonesia there's a bunch of islands and each island has like its own set of diverse cultures right so bali is primarily a hindu culture and cockfighting is seen as a religious practice to them so legally cockfighting is actually allowed but only allowed in the context of hindu uh hindu services of some kind so there's many like hindu temples that have cockfighting arenas where they're allowed to do cockfighting however what's illegal is betting on cockfighting so you can't go to a hindu temple and bet on the cockfighting and the other thing that's illegal is like secular cockfighting so any like on the side of the street cockfighting that's happening and as far as i could tell in the in the movie it was one of those like side of the street cockfighting that's going on so it would have been illegal, which is why they took the bribes uh, in the first place to bribe the police. But also, like on reading on it, it's kind of like frowned upon by the government, but they don't do much to interfere or stop the practice because it's such a popular thing in Bali. Yeah. It was interesting to me that Ezra focuses more on the animal welfare aspect of this because like he seems not to care when like turkeys are being uh held improperly in canada yeah that was something i was thinking of like we covered already turkey farmers and yeah and animal cruelty and the animal activist and he was even saying like implying that he would shoot them yeah <laughs> exactly i mean it's a similar thing when we get to the dog meat portion but yeah but as per like mckenna like even all that i'm saying about the one dude, the narrator of the film. I don't see how this reflects poorly on McKenna, who isn't seen actually betting on the thing. She was just there with them. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, whatever, she's there. Who cares? <laughs> she's experiencing Bali culture. Yeah. So now, the dog meat. <laughs> Ezra ha like spends most of the time uh, focusing on McKenna's name. And is now referring to her as McKennell. Okay. So you got her. Zing. I understand that some places in the world eat dogs, just like some places eat rabbits, some places eat horses. But would you eat a dog? I mean, would you? Don't just think of the question. Think of your answer. If you were literally starving, you probably would. But what if you were just on a vacation for kicks? Would you eat a dog? Catherine McKennell did. Oh, did I call her McKennell? I meant McKenna. And he calls her a creep over and over again, specifically for eating dog. So it's creepy, it's disgusting, it's stomach turning that she ate this dog. So you can see what, what angle he's going on. And he like tries to upsell like the cuteness of it, which is weird to me. Like I feel like he should have like doubled down on like how loyal dogs are and how they're like companions. But he's like, how dare she eat a cute thing like a dog? <laughs> And uh, they, they're now making t-shirts that have dogs on them that say, don't eat me. And there's oh. so, uh, yeah, the thing is, so this is on the island of Flores where eating dog is common. And they were at a market 
and they were sold it and they ate it. And I actually have like no problem. Like I don't eat any meat. So I think the eating of meat generally is not cool or is kind of disgusting. <laughs> yeah. No, Other I'm the same do. way. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, what is so special about dog in this culture that say a pig isn't special in ours, you know? Like pigs are yeah. just as smart as dogs. Pigs are disgusting animals, but anyways. <laughs> oh. Pigs are... Caitlin pigs... coming down hard on pigs here. No, pigs are like disgusting creatures that will literally eat their own shit in themselves if they don't get food. And I think that's disgusting. And they carry, they can carry a lot of diseases. They are not cute like dogs. They are not the same thing. I don't understand I why people. Differ. I don't understand why people even want them as pets. I think that's <laughs> just stupid. Because they're yeah. cute. They're and not they're very smart. Pigs are very are, smart. I didn't say they weren't smart. I just said they're fucking gluttonous. That's all I said. Have you seen a dog lick its own ass? Like, let's. <laughs> the difference is the dog is cleaning itself. The pig is just fucking gluttonous. Like, it just wants food all the fucking time. Well, this is where the show's going to end over this dispute. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying you should go eat a pig or kill a pig. I'm just saying that, in my opinion, as an animal, I don't like them. Hit us but up I on Twitter. Are you, are you team dog or team pig? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't think it's a cute animal. I just think that I wouldn't eat and I don't think you should eat them. It's just like live, let them live their fucking nasty ass lives <laughs> up alone. I just don't think they're cute. That's uh, it. But like again, I guess the, uh, the only thing I will ask then is like, so should we cancel McKenna over this? <laughs> I think it's pretty gross that she ate dog, and that's like a huge issue too. And like Southeast Asia, they even have like a dog adoption centers here that you can get dogs from East. Uh, Southeast Asia to avoid these like eating dog practices and I don't know I don't personally like it I get that it's like your culture and everything but I don't I don't think I don't think you should eat I don't think you should eat animals I mean but see that to me is the point right like if yeah if you're coming at it from the argument of like McKenna shouldn't eat meat period and you're gonna also criticize her for eating cow and other like animals here. Yeah. Then I would be okay with this line of argument. But to go specifically dogs and make it a cultural thing, that's just like now you're being xenophobic to me, you know? That's like where it crosses the line because it's it's just as bad as eating any other animal if eating animals is bad, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's even worse here because you have the mass production of killing and like make like selling meat that to me is insane yeah it's like you just breed them and then they live their lives and in just such shitty awful conditions and then you you kill them like that's all that's awful that we do that and like i have no idea (laughs) i don't know i still think it's gross that she ate dog meat like i would just never do that but i'm not saying that indonesian people are bad for eating dog meat i just think that that's gross that she you never grew up in that culture, and then you went and were like, mm, I'm going to eat this. Like, no, yeah. that's not okay. Like, that's what I think is weird. It's like, she's not Indonesian. You can refuse it. Like, no one's going to kill you. Yeah. For refusing to eat a dog. 
but I don't think it's, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm sure they're not mass breeding dogs over there into like an assembly line for consumption later on. So. But I wonder there if there's going to be some cognitive dissonance, right? In the sense of if you were to refuse dog, you would start going down a path of like, why am I refusing to eat the dog? Right. And because like, I thought about this myself, like one of the reasons that started slowly moving me towards veganism was that I I couldn't, I, I thought to myself, it's like, what's the difference between eating, say, a cow and my cat? And like, I was very attached with my cat. And I couldn't, I couldn't think of like a good reason for this, right? Because you're socialized from a young age to see, like, if you have parents who are eating cow and you see that as a norm and you go to a grocery store and don't see it like as it is and then see it get shared, you grow up knowing that's normal. So it'd be really fucking weird if you just were like, mm, let's eat a cat. Yeah, but I think I think where the dissonance comes in, though, is where if you start going down that rabbit hole, you start realizing how arbitrary this is. And if you start realizing and once you start realizing that it's arbitrary, you start going, people could have like those kind of emotional relationships with cows, too. And if they can have those emotional relationships with cows and I wouldn't eat my cat, maybe I shouldn't be eating this cow. So, like, I wonder (laughs) if there's like this conflict where at the end of the, the day, it's like, no, I can eat the dog because people eat meat and they just like push push all those thoughts like out of their head, you know they've already settled the cognitive dissonance in their head. So even though you feel it's weird because we're both non-meat eaters, I don't think that they would think that it's weird. Yeah. No, I like, like my mom's eaten like iguana. <laughs> so I don't know if people eat weird fucking animals for no good reason, in my opinion, but. Just eat plants. Plants are delicious. What a- <laughs> yeah, there's just. Eat fucking carbs, people. Get over this whole protein <laughs> shit and just eat a fucking carb. <laughs> that would make the world so much fucking better. It is fascinating, though, because on the next day during the mailbag segment, one of Ezra's audience actually criticized him for his coverage about the dog meat, saying okay. that when they went on vacation one time, they ate dog too, that like it's just the culture and that uh, it isn't really her place to criticize the customs of another country, especially while she's there. And Ezra then admits to having eaten rabbit stew before, saying rabbits are cute. And it's like, if his primary argument against McKenna is that dogs are cute and therefore you shouldn't eat them, and yet here Ezra is now admitting to eat, he's eaten cute rabbits? Like this... (laughs) Yeah. It's just such a stupid... it's, It's like he's so desperate to get a gotcha that he's... He's so fucking stupid. Like this. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. So then we'll get to the last point, which is this wedding. Ezra accuses McKenna of attending what he describes as a forced marriage ceremony. He says this, and then he himself, Ezra, starts to defend arranged marriages. I understand arranged marriages. It's when a bride's family and a groom's family make an agreement about a wedding, and falling in love is not the key component, but rather the two families' compatibility. There are very many successful arranged marriages. The compatibility of both families is indeed important in life. And many couples in such arranged marriages do fall in love. And this is like an awkward tension 
uh, in Ezra's relaying of this story, because I think he is aware that he can't be against arranged marriages, because even in Canada, a lot of Christian conservatives engage in aspects of this kind of practice. And those people make up a large portion of his audience. He's also Jewish and like Orthodox, certain Orthodox communities of Judaism also have arranged marriages. So, Right. And the tension here, here is that Ezra is trying to draw a line between what he sees as a kind of like acceptable versus a non-acceptable misogyny. When personally, I'm like, you really shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Like, so he describes the pro, his pro-arranged marriage stance seems to be like two families can get together and go, you know, we're building this mutual trust thing. Here's my daughter. Here's my son kind of thing. And like, I don't know what you think about this, but that still to me like removes the agency from the people involved, like the children involved in this scenario. Uh, I think it depends because what if it's like you're waiting for your son or daughter to get to a certain age and then let them decide whether they want to arrange it or not? I don't think that's what Ezra is saying, though. I think Ezra is saying that like the parents are deciding that these two are getting married. I don't think that happens often, though. It's usually like, like, I don't know, like I ha- I know people and have acquaintances i guess that have had arranged marriages or are in arranged marriages and that's it's never been like that like i've never heard anyone being like my parents forced me to get an arranged marriage i've heard people talk about like feeling you know maybe a little bit pressured by their parents nothing like i'm gonna force your hand or i'm just gonna set this up and i do think that that does happen but i don't think it's as uh, as often yeah Like, I don't think that is the standard. I think the standard is, like, your parents have these expectations of who you're going to marry. They kind of, you know, socialize and kind of pressure you for those expectations throughout your lifetime. And, yeah, maybe it's something that you see as really great. You want it for your life, so you go ahead and let your parents set it up. Or maybe you decide against it and, you know, maybe have some issues with your parents, depending on how your parents are. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that is the question ultimately is like, to what extent the arrangement has force behind it or social or cultural consequences? Well, you also have to think that it's like, again, like Indonesia, I'm pretty sure, yeah, Indonesia has the highest muslim population out of every any country yeah but within that there's so much um heterogeneity yeah like they're they're not all uniformly the same you can meet someone who's a little more like liberal with the ideas of marriage compared to other families who might be more conservative and it really depends on that family and and maybe even where they're situated if they're more rural or more urban areas as well there's just so many factors that go into that so i think that's such a weird blanket statement to put no it's like really really odd like he's just making indonesia sound like this like really out of date backwards country that you know didn't update its cultural practices what since like centuries ago like i i don't well, we'll, like get, we'll, get into, we'll get into what the marriage arrangement was like. Right now, all I've said is that Ezra says that it was forced, right? Yeah. And I'll sort of like explain what that is. But yeah. I, I want to hit on because you said most are like Indonesia has a large Muslim population. 
what is happening here is that Flores, the island where this wedding has taken place, they're, the main religion on that island is Roman Catholicism. And in fact, this is a Roman Catholic wedding that they're attending. Oh. And Ezra doesn't even bring that up. And I wonder why. <laughs> you know, because Ezra clearly wants to sort of like, as you said, like create this culture as this like backwards, like icky culture, non-Western, right? Yeah. But it's a Roman Catholic marriage. Interesting. There is some confusion, I think, about the nature of the wedding. And part of me wonders if some of this is a translation issue. Because, like, I don't think these narrators, like the the three men and McKenna, were experts. Like, especially if they were all in their 20s and just on this trip. And so, at one point, the person describes the wedding as an arranged marriage that went to the highest bidder. Okay. Now, when I was looking into trying to, like learn about arranged marriages in Indonesia, specifically in Flores. It isn't clear to me that the island of what, what happens on this island is the equivalent of an auction. Like you're, you're bidding on like women, which is how Ezra ends up describing what occurred here. Arranged doesn't mean forced, by the way. Many arranged marriages have the support of the bride and groom. But what you are about to see is not that. This is not two families agreeing to join together. This is an auction. What's more common is this thing called a, a bride price. And what a bride price is, it, well, first, first I should say, bride prices are common throughout Indonesia, including uh, the Muslim portions of the country. Yeah. But in some places, it's actually legally mandated, which means people have to pay for the bride. Legally. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's the case on Flores. I couldn't find any information. But it's it's just one of these things where it's so culturally ingrained that some of these countries have it legally mandated to do it. Yeah. Now, what likely happened... So it's, like a, it's a dowry. That's basically what it is. So it's actually different than a dowry. Because dowries are off... Is when the parents pay, uh, pay the man, basically, to take their daughter kind of thing. Right? Okay. A bride price is where the groom pays the the bride's family. Flipped, so it's reversed. Right. Yeah, okay. Now, what likely happened in this instance was that the two families arranged for the couple to marry, and then either traditionally or legally, they paid or the husband, the groom, paid the bride pay price. And in this case, it was some buffalo and some money. And the both, what happened was most of the buffalo was consumed at the wedding itself, right? So there's some ceremonial aspect to this. Okay. And I just want to say, like, these aren't completely identical, but there are certain cultural practices in the West that are vaguely similar to this, such as the cultural expectation of purchasing a very expensive diamond ring for the bride. Now, like, they're not like a one-to-one -one correspondence here, but you can see how some of these practices have lineages and, and uh, various similarities. But even if we can agree <laughs> that this type of marital arrangement is misogynistic or morally problematic, I guess, like, the thing is, what responsibility do you have to call it out or question it when you happen to stumble upon a marriage ceremony when you're in another country? Yeah, no, I know. Like, I, I don't know what Ezra expected McKenna to have done, <laughs> you know? Like, should she have, like, stood up and would, like, stop this marriage immediately? 
<laughs> you know, because then they'll be just like, can you leave? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And it's like you're in a different country, too, in which she was like in her young 20s. So, yeah, she was she was either 23 or 24, given when when this video was made. Yeah. He And then so he takes this and then he somehow thinks that this is so bad about McKenna and her feminism that he compares her to John Gomeshi and Epstein. Maybe she wasn't really sold for some cash and two buffaloes or whatever it was. Maybe this is what Catherine McKenna means when she says she's a feminist, go girl power. Just like Justin Trudeau is a feminist, just like Harvey Weinstein is a feminist, just like Jeanne Gomeshi is a feminist, just like Jeffrey Epstein was a feminist. These two things are not on the same fucking sphere, Ezra. Witnessing a cultural practice that may or may not be disagreeable is different than actually like raping children. Yeah. I can say though, that there is something to say about the framing of this documentary though that doesn't sit right with me oh 100 percent. because from what you basically told me it's like they're pointing out these maybe practices that are actually not part of everyday life they're more like rare or in more rural or maybe remote areas of indonesia indonesia itself is like a big and diverse place so they begin their trip in jakarta where it's a lot yeah. more modern and they reflect on that and say that where they were going uh was a bit more rural and they like admit to that in the documentary but that's the thing if you want to actually depict what a country is like do you go to the areas that are the most remote and say that this is the culture or do you actually go around to like more heavily populated and do a survey of different people in their day-to-day lives rather than just showing slight, you know what I'm saying? Like just, yeah. Again, this is kind of what bugs me about the documentary in the first place. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a documentary. It's, it's a travel log. You yeah. Know? This is why it was played on the travel channel. So this isn't to say we're a bunch of documentarians doing a documentary on Indonesia. This is we're four young college kids and we're going to Indonesia to have some fun. Yeah, that's what we're watching. And and that actually like screw like the dog eating, the cockfighting and the wedding thing. That actually bugs me more about the video because that tells me way more about McKenna that she could afford to go on a 60 day joyride through Indonesia just out of like college. And yeah. film it with her friends, possible friends, and then somehow pitch it as a pilot for a TV show. Yeah. And it's like. This is just a bunch of spoiled rich kids. That's all this is. A hundred percent. And I mean, this is relates to my thesis because this is what I'm actually studying is like these students in university who have enough wealth to go abroad and what that actually leads to like an accumulated advantage later on in your life. But my original point with what I'm saying is like, if you're going to show some sort of like documentary series, why are you showing the most remote parts of these cultures? And then making it seem like this is the culture. So then it gets depicted to the West as this like exotic, bizarre place when they do a lot of practices that are very similar to our everyday life. Like this is what I'm trying to argue is this exoticism of different places in the East. Like, yes, there's cultural differences, but they also are like, you get what I'm saying now? I I don't have the words to say it. It's the kind of, it reminds me of Edward Said's Orientalism. Right. It's yes, it's, displaying, 
it's displaying the Indonesian culture as like exotic, right? And like, there's a part in which like I I I 100% get that critique, but the other part of me is go is going like again, these are 20 year olds on a joyride who like. <laughs> <laughs> who like you know it would be one thing if they set out to say we're capturing the culture it honestly but, doesn't yeah. feel that way it's like they're just going we're having fun but, but then but it has that it has yeah. that taste of it that you're describing where it's but like this is a part of the problem though yeah. because you get these 20 year olds who are going abroad and even if they're not making some sort of documentary they're actually feeding into depictions of what these cultures are like because they're sharing it on media. They're sharing it with their friends. These people did this little travel log of their their experiences, and they're not actually capturing the truth. I'll, I'll tell you one moment in the film which perfectly encapsulates what you're describing is right before the wedding, they attend what they call a catchy catchy ceremony, which is these two men are whipping each other with these sticks to, as like a feat of masculinity. And then after they're done doing that, they all participate in this dance. And it's like a traditional dance. And you see these 20-year-old white dudes, like, yucking it up dancing with these indigenous people. And I was just so uncomfortable watching it. To me, it kind of reminds me of when you see girls that go to, like, South Africa. And they're like, ah, I'm going to help poor, impoverished children in South yep. Africa. And then they perpetuate this image that South Africa is this very poor, desolate place when they're probably going to very remote, poverty-stricken areas, which we fucking have in Canada yeah. ourselves. It's like, just fucking help people in Canada. You didn't need to go fly over and spend thousands of dollars, extra, mm -hmm. extra money, just to take a picture of a black baby to make yourself look like a white hero yeah. or make yourself look interesting to your fucking Facebook friends. Just like you want to go to fucking South Africa, just go to South Africa on a trip, stay in a fucking resort, enjoy your time there. Stop this like you're a humanitarian now and trying to sell it as like you're you're cultured, you're more elite, you're you know, because you're going to these these remote places. If you want to help them, like there's other ways of doing it. Even in this documentary, there's no pretense to like humanitarianism, but there still is this ickiness of like you can afford to like go on this 60 day trip. And like visit all these places that are important. Yeah, but but there is this exoticism of yeah. like, look at what I get to see around this world that makes you appear more cultured. They they had a joke that like so they're at this place that's like really desolate and doesn't have like potable water, and McKenna goes out to use the washroom and they're like, Catherine attempted to go into a bathroom, but it was already being used, and she opens the door and a bird flies out. And it like it felt like mocking them because they were poor to a certain degree, mm. you know, like Haha, yeah. they they have like no running water. And so they have open toilets where birds are in them. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. And then they're showing that. And then that's going to get depicted back to like other white people who are going to have this picture. This is what Indonesia is like when it's really not what Indonesia is on the day to day. Like, yes, this does exist. But like you're going to specifically remote areas and depicting it as this. And, and then at the same time, you're placing yourself on a pedestal by saying, look how exotic and cultured I am by taking part in all these traditional ceremonies. And like it's telling to Ezra, of course, like he focuses on the sort of like, quote unquote, exotic stuff that he can point to and go, icky, it's not my culture, icky. Meanwhile, he ignores all the, the shit that we just pointed out, you know, like that doesn't bother him at all. 
Yeah, I know. But then also, Ezra is not alone in this because every fucking boomer is going to do that. Like, let's yeah. say this could get a published Travis travel log and some boomers watching this, like, you know, on their Saturday evening or whatever. <laughs> they're going to say the exact same thing Ezra is saying. BLN, the Boomer Life Network. <laughs> <laughs> chatted up with Andre Goulet, who is starting up a project with a bunch of other people, but he, he's been the contact that I've talked to. Uh, it's this thing called uh, Harbinger Media Network. And the idea is that they're creating this podcast network. So the right wing has a very influential ability to uh, get views and connect all together. And there's like cross pollination with their guests and it pushes them far up the uh, podcast charts. So you get Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin and all these clowns up at the top of like iTunes charts, Joe Rogan. And so what they're trying to accomplish with Harbinger Media uh, is to do something similar, but on the left, make it grassroots and make it uh, with Canadian left-wing content. And I've talked to them. We might eventually be on the network, but uh, we're not going to be on the initial release of this. And I think the initial release, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be October 19th. So I just want to say they have a Patreon. I think it's a worthwhile project to help out. But also stay tuned for when they launch the project. And uh, I would say... Uh, give them feedback, also listen to it and promote it because I think it's it's a neat idea. It's a way of building solidarity within the left-wing Canadian podcast community. And I know Caitlin and I both love solidarity. Forever. <laughs> that was good. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up, and we'll be doing Twitch streams every Friday at 8 p.m. You can find all the links to our social media stuff in the show notes. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striatum.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. And McEzra needs to stop McMaking Mick puns about McKennel. <laughs> but also he should seriously consider stop being a McRacist. McKennel. Jesus fucking Christ. What a child. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.